Today we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if someone asks you, uh, what does Mark 17 uh, say? Say, ha ha, there is no Mark 17. It ends at 16. This is it. And so today we come to the end of the story. Let's share in God's good word together. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Terror and amazement. Does that sound like good news to you? So much so that they went out and they said nothing to anyone. It's a double negative in, uh, in the scriptures, meaning they didn't say anything, and you better believe it, they didn't say anything. They did not know what was going on. And yet you and I and billions of people around the planet gather today in Jesus' name. So somebody told somebody. Somehow. And, and the reader is supposed to know, hey, you know the story. It's now on you to go share the story. It's ours to do, friends. And so today we finish up our series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the first written, the shortest, my favorite. I'm named after him even. And so um, I'm going to take us through a, a great opportunity to really look at the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. If you wanted to read it, you could sit down and read it this afternoon in less than an hour. Even if you're not a very fast reader, you can read it out loud in less than an hour and know the entire Gospel, the good news according to Mark. And so what we've learned is that Mark is the shortest and the first gospel written in roughly 70 AD, following the destruction of Jerusalem. These are people who are subjected to a very harsh uh, government uh, from Rome. It's come all the way over from Italy, and it is oppressing them. So much so that there was an uprising, and the Roman government had to come over and push that back down. But the way they did it was to burn Jerusalem to the ground, including the temple, the very place that was to house God. That's where God dwelt. That's where everybody came in from um, to basically have their thanksgiving, to remember who they were and that they were God's people. And much of their history had been burnt down in front of them, right in front of their eyes. And yet it is into this world that Mark writes, this is the beginning of what? Say it with me. The good news of Jesus. That Jesus is coming into the world. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is the very Son of God. And so we see the very beginning of this inbreaking of God's kingdom where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. And we know that one day the culmination of this kingdom is what we know as heaven, uh, which is the end. And that is the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus, King Jesus, the Christ, where nothing is missing, nothing is broken, and God rules. Because heaven is where what God wants done is done. And of course you and I, if we're honest, we know that the main thing that gets in front of heaven on earth is my kingdom and my rule. I want to do what I want to do, maybe not what Jesus wants me to do, because most things Jesus wants me to do are hard. Like, think good thoughts about all the people at the Thanksgiving table that are going home soon, I pray. (laughs) Forgiveness and grace and goodness. And so in the middle, yes, there's suffering. There's suffering, real suffering. 
not just inconveniences. And so Jesus says, if you're going to live through this in-between time, you better have a buddy. If you're going to be a Christian, that is never a lone ranger faith. It is always with someone. If you look at Jesus' life, he always sent them out in twos, right? Always in twos. He called the 12 and began to send them out how? Two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and to heal and to teach and to preach and to help others. And, and so what we find is that as, as soon as we get going in ministry, then and now, we come face to face with evil. Real evil. Now, to be fair, about 80% of what we come across is stupid. It's just stupid. And people do dumb things from time to time. That's not evil. But there is a part of the time where if you're paying attention... It's not just a bad decision. There really is evil in the world. And it is our job to fight back against that oppression and injustice and evil in whatever forms they present themselves. If you're a member here, that's the value you've taken. That's what we are to do wherever we go. And to follow Jesus, then, is to find ourselves face-to-face with the very opposition to Jesus. The evils of this world, the needs of this world. And my uh, preaching professor, Zan Holmes, would say, if you haven't come face to face with the devil yet, you might just be walking in the same direction. (laughs) Dr. Lane Heath says it this way. I hope you'll say it with me. Show up, pay attention, cooperate with God, and release the outcome. That is the way to follow Jesus. To truly release the outcome. It doesn't have to be our way anymore. It can be Jesus' way, whatever Jesus chooses that to be. And I will tell you, that is the key to a happy life, by the way. If you can finally release outcomes to Jesus, you'll be amazed at how much freedom you have in your life. You don't have to be upset anymore. You don't have to you know, be mad at anyone anymore because the results are his. They're not on yours. You can actually release that into a life of joy. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. And what that means is to serve others instead of others expecting to serve you. Now, this is quite instructive in turning the world on its head. How many kings do you know that says, oh, by the way, get ready, I'm about to go serve you. That's not what kings do. Kings sit on a throne and people come and serve them. Pay taxes to them. Bless them. And Jesus says, not so in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the last is first, the servant of all. Jesus says it like this in Mark 8. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet, say it with me, forfeit their soul? You know, if you think about your time, As an eternal being, it is a blink of an eye. My dad used to tell me that uh, when he was in college, they showed a film where uh, from the beginning of Earth to the time of Earth uh, as it was when he was in school in the 1950s. And at that time, the entirety of humanity in a 24-hour film would be six seconds. You're going to be dead a lot longer than you've been alive. And so the question is, who are you going to be? Are you living for that six seconds? Or are you living for all eternity? Jesus says the wise person would actually care more about who you're going to be for all eternity than who you're going to be for a day or two or a blink of an eye. 
So when Jesus says deny yourself, what he means is to renounce self-centeredness and replace it with God-centeredness. Because God is going to be around a lot longer than you are. And so it only makes sense that if you're going to live in God's kingdom, then you would begin to learn how to do those things here and now. The problem is, we don't always like what that includes. It certainly was, was that case for the disciples. Because Jesus, rather than saying, he's the king and everybody's going to serve him and, and his disciples, what he says is, actually, I'm going to suffer and die. And then be raised on the third day. And as close as followers, they didn't say, oh, Jesus, how can we support you in that? They're like, well, what's going to happen to us? And if we're not careful, you know, that's, that's still very salient. One of the great privileges and one of the great burdens that pastors carry is that we're with families in their deepest moments of need. And sometimes I have the incredible privilege of seeing a family gather around a loved one and really bless them and celebrate them and and do everything they can to make sure that their passing or their illness is something that is turned into a blessing and not a hardship. And sometimes I go into other families and, and the person is there suffering in an agony and the only thing the family's doing around them is fighting about who's going to get what when that person is dead. I'll tell you, it's not pretty. It makes all the world a difference. And you can tell people who live for the kingdom and people who live for the world. It's not hard to tell. Let's not kid ourselves. It's really easy to see. So Jesus, over and over again, he said, friends, you have to get this right. You have to understand. He takes them aside and he tells them what's going to happen to him. Not once, not twice, but three times. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man, a name he uses for himself, will be handed over to chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will, what? Rise again. We are Easter people. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came forward to Jesus and they say, Hey, teacher, since you just said all that, it's very powerful, we know. But we want you to do something for us. Jesus says, Well, what is it? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. You know, after your debt. Anybody have family like that? It's like, what is wrong with these people? What is wrong with you? And, and it is really because, you know, the hard thing about prayer and Jesus and family and love is that we would love to say that we don't understand what's going on. But the truth is we don't want to know what's going on. And so we pretend that we don't understand. When we absolutely do. So Jesus, living this out in real time in front of his friends, says that he actually arrives in Jerusalem. But not as a king of kings, as we know him to be, but on a donkey, on a colt. Showing that he is truly the Messiah, but also in humility. Not the kind of Messiah that they thought. Because everyone, when they thought of Messiah, they thought of King David. You know, the one that kills the Philistines and cuts the guy's head off and carries it around as a trophy. That's what they thought Jesus was coming to do to Rome. And it just, it wasn't. It was much bigger than that. He's he's saved the whole world for all time. So in Mark 11, it's described like this. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. See, they thought they knew who Jesus was. Say it with me. 
Hosanna in the highest heaven. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way Dr. Amy Jill Levine says it. She's like, yeah, they had the right title. Wrong job description. I mean, they had, they had the title right. They just didn't get it. Now, when it comes to connecting with the king, concerning prayer, Jesus teaches that when you align yourself with God's will, then it will come to pass. It's just a matter of time. You may not see it today. You may not see it tomorrow. You may not see it in a year. But ultimately, if you align yourself with what God is doing, God wins. We know this. In the end, God has the last word. And so if you align yourself with God, then it's going to be right. And that's why Jesus says, if you ask for anything in my name in alignment with what I want, it will come to pass. It will be done for you. Because what God wants done is done in heaven. And so Mark says it very clearly in, in chapter 11. He says, so I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Now, I also want to let you know, if uh, when you go out in the gathering space, you go, God, I want a Mercedes. That ain't happening. It's not how that works. Because it could be that a Mercedes is the worst thing in the world for you. And if it is, God won't give it to you because it's actually bad for you. Now, I suppose that there might be somebody somewhere that really needs a Mercedes. And if that's you, I want to know you. You can drive me around all you want. That'll be great. But that's not how it works for most of us. Jesus also teaches that to be in alignment with what God wants, mm, this gets harder, doesn't it? You must do what? Forgive. Now, not just forgive if you have, say it with me, anything against anyone. That's kind of broad. Anything against anyone. Well, since it is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, you might have some names on your list. And if you do, just go ahead and take care of that right now. Say, Lord, I want to know with you. I want to be right with you. And so I release whatever it is, anyone, anything, trusting that with you it will be made right, it will become aligned, it will be as you want in your time. And walk out of here free. Don't think another thing of it. It'll change your life. So Jesus says, when it comes to prayer, of course, we say this in the Lord's Prayer every week. But if you want to come at it a different way, whenever you stand praying, what are we supposed to do? Forgive. Because God, you, you can't even pray rightly to God if you're not right with your brother and sister. James tells us this. Anyone who says he loves his brother and sister, but it loves God, but hates his brother and sister, he says they're, they're lying. It's just not true. So if you have anything against anyone, Jesus says, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. It's just, it's it's axiom. God's not mad at you about that. It's just that you're not capable of receiving until you release it. It's like trying to catch a ball with a closed fist. It's just not possible. You have to open it up first. Then you can receive whatever God has for you. So Jesus says that of all the things, the most important thing about following him is love, And love in two ways, God and others. They go together. One of the scribes actually comes to him and he asks him, which commandment is first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall say it with me. This is the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That is first. And then Jesus says, if you want to know if you're actually doing the first, then you have to see if you're doing the second. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. 
You can take all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the entire Torah, and boil it down to this. Love God, love others. It blew their minds. And if we're really sober about it, it blows ours. That's what's required of us. Rachel Held Evans um, passed away uh, when she was 37, I believe. But man, she, she really had a, a connection to the Lord and was a beautiful writer um, up until the, the day that she passed. Uh, she wrote this about this. She says, heart and soul and might. In other words, we are to love God with our whole selves. Our whole messy and complicated and conflicted selves. Because we have to love God as we are because we can't love him as we're not. We have to come with all that we are. Dr. King would say it differently. He says, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? How are you doing on that second commandment to love neighbor as self? What are you doing to actually love them? That's the question in the Christian life. So as we do this, we don't do it alone, and we don't do it without hope. We do it in the full hope and full knowledge that to follow Jesus is to know that Jesus will return. But here's the tricky part. Not even Jesus knows when that's going to be. Only the Father. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus says, will not pass away. But about that day or hour, say it with me, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, speaking of himself, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. And if you've been alive uh, since 1999, you've witnessed this. I mean, people were freaking out going into Y2K. Anybody remember that? I mean, people had like 1,800 gallons of water in their garage. Weird. Weird. They're still drinking that water from 99. So Dr. Levine says, look, it's not so much about the when as the how. For Jesus, the salient question is not the when of the end times, but the how of living with this expectation. How do we do it? How do we do it? Well, until that day, Dr. Earl taught us that we embrace the cross. And we embrace the resurrection by becoming involved in the pain around us and by working to bring the world back to life, to actually resurrect, to be a part of that heaven to earth. Again, uh, Rachel Evans would say, at its best, faith teaches us to live without certainty and to hope without guarantee. At its best, faith teaches us to take risks. And then you come to the very last chapters of Mark, the rest of the story. You have betrayal and denial and abandonment. You have women and you have this mysterious young man. And of course, you have Judas, who was one of the twelve. He went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, friends, whatever you think of Judas, whether you think of him as a betrayer Or a colluder, because you would be reminded that Jesus is not a victim in the story. He is the victor. He knows what's going to happen. He chooses to go to the cross. He chooses to fulfill his mission. And so, how much of it is Judas' fault, really? If if Jesus really wanted to stop it, why didn't he pull Judas aside? Why didn't he correct him? He is God, by the way. If you think Judas is a zealot, and he is, you know, I, I do think that Judas in some way, really thought, if I just push Jesus enough, he'll show everybody that it really is Messiah. I know he's Messiah. I know what he can do. I've seen him do it. He's got the power. I, I just have to set him up in a way where he can actually do it. But again, he didn't know what Jesus' real Messiahship was about. And of course, John really describes Judas as greedy. He liked to steal off the purse 
of the disciples. But whatever you think of him, make sure that your eyes are on Jesus and not on Judas. Because what Jesus does is that he chooses Judas to be with him at his last meal. So if you want to be like Jesus, you might want to consider your relationship with Judas. And what is that like? It's a very complicated thing that we're talking about. You see, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they had taken their places and were eating. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. He said it in such a way that all twelve could go, is it me? Is it going to be me? And they began to be distressed and to say to one another, surely not I, surely not I. And he says to them, Jesus says, it is the one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. Well, unless Judas had 18 feet long arms, he's next to Jesus. You think about that. Where is Judas at the very last moments of Jesus' life? Right next to him. If you play it out, probably John on one side and Judas on the other. Close enough to have his hand in the same bowl. And whatever you think of Peter, whether you think of him as the rock, whether you think of him as the first bishop, whether you think about the person who walked on water for just a little bit, or whether he's the denier, we know that Peter's talk was always bigger than his walk. And it was problematic for him. He was right-hearted, but he, he really thought too highly of himself. Jesus says to them, you will all become deserters, not just Peter. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter says to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. I'm not like them. I'm better than. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you this day, this very night, before the cock crows, even twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter says, uh-uh, even if I have to die with you, Jesus. I mean, he is doubling down on his pride. Say it with me. I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. We like to skip that line. And all of them said the same. Haven't you said that to Jesus? Haven't you said that to your family? Haven't you said that to yourself? Oh, I will never do that again. I've learned my lesson. That was dumb. I would never do that. And then you did. You have. You are. Dallas Willard asked our our class a haunting question. He looked at us in all seriousness and said, when do you intend to stop sinning? It was about that quiet in the room. We do have some choices in our life about whether we intend to follow Jesus truly or whether it's just, oh, not me. It's just bluster. You see, we are all capable, every one of us, of loyalty, yes, and betrayal. Supreme good, yes, and supreme evil. So says Dr. Levine. Despite the vows, the promises, the contracts, we all fail at some point. We all do. And the important question is, what happens next? Not whether you failed or not. Everybody does. We just got to get past that. It's what happens next. And we have these two very different responses. The first is Judas, his betrayer. He sees that Jesus is condemned. He repents. He actually does have a change of heart. He's like, oh no, I've made a terrible mistake. And so he brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. He owns it. And they said, so what? What's that to us? See to it yourself. 
And so the only thing he knew left to do was to throw down the silver in the temple, and he left. And you'll notice he wasn't in a group of two. If he had somebody with him, I, I tell you, he'd still be alive, right? Somebody there to say, Judas, there's hope. Judas, you don't have to hang yourself. You don't have to kill yourself. We're with you. We know you made a mistake. We know that you're heartbroken about that. We're heartbroken about it too. But Jesus is God. He will do something. But there wasn't anybody by him. He was alone. He was despondent. And so he took his life. Now, make very clear that this scripture has nothing to do with suicide. It has no teaching about the benefits or terribleness of suicide. That's not what this is about. And if you hear somebody doing it that way, just walk away. That's not what this is about at all. It's simply letting you know about how this came to pass. And so for Mark, Dr. Levine says very clearly, his fate remains open, friends. We don't know what happens to Judas. I mean, people make assumptions about it, sure, but we don't know. Judas provides a warning against judging others, especially when we don't know their motives. What we do know is that he was heartbroken. He tried to repent. And if you want to really get dark, the people who were taking the money, they didn't want to spend it in a certain way because it was blood money. Like, that's the problem with the story. When the religiosity can get you in some pretty dark places if you're not careful. So what does Jesus do? He takes Peter, James, and John because he needs them to stay awake, to kind of watch guard because he's going to go pray and, you know, and ask God if he can get out of this. And we know that God says, no, this is, this is your will. This is what you're going to do. And so Jesus comes to them three times. And on the third time, he says to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. And it is Judas. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, he arrives with him. And there was a crowd, swords and clubs, from the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And say it with me. All of them deserted him and fled. That is not unique to Judas. That is every single one of the disciples. And then you would think that the writer would say, and this is what happened next with Judas, or this is what happened next with Jesus, or this is what happened next with Peter. No, you get this very weird cameo of John Mark. It's like, and there was this young man. And they grabbed his linen, and he runs off naked. I was named after a stripper. Can you believe that? That was terrible stuff my parents did to me. So is, is he giving himself a cameo, the writer of the gospel, or is he actually an angel giving us hope that there is a heavenly messenger that knows what's going on with Jesus? He's actually watching it all along. You see, a certain young man, that's the term used in the Bible, was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth, ran off naked. Did y'all know there was naked stuff in the Bible? Runs off naked. Now you'll notice that if you were reading this in the original, the same word used for young man is the same word used for the young man at the tomb. Neither are named. As they entered the tomb, they saw a what? Young man. Dressed in a white robe. Sitting on the right side. They were alarmed, but he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for who? Jesus of Nazareth. Ding, ding, ding. You're at the right place. You have got to the right place. But he was crucified. Yes, the right Jesus. He's been raised. That's the good news that was promised. He's not here. Look, there's the place that they laid him. Now, this is important. We don't think of this because we don't do tombs in this way. But an empty tomb alone proves nothing. 
People used to think that the nails that were used to crucify someone had magical powers. And they would go and they would take them. They were grave robbers. Sometimes people were buried with things that were valuable. They would go and they would take their stuff. And so the women were really just completely overwhelmed with grief. Not only was their Messiah dead, he had been taken. And, and the young man says, no, 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 this is Jesus' tomb, right? You got to know that. He did die and was raised. You got to know that. And never, ever forget that he promised that he would have a new body and he'll see you in Galilee. Which, by the way, if you've been to the Holy Land, it's not close. It's not down the block. It's a couple days' walk. So the young man sends the women and the disciples back to Galilee to start over at the beginning of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful that we worship a God of second chances? He's like, no, he's not here. We're going we're to try this again. Go back to Galilee. Go tell the disciples and Peter, and Peter especially, that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And man, they did. And we're here today. But here's the thing Dr. Levine points out. She says, Mark gives us no resurrection appearance. They leave in terror and amazement, say nothing to no one. But Mark assures readers that Jesus will meet his followers in Galilee. And for more than 2,000 years, we have celebrated that fact. And what happens? The 11 are reunited with Jesus in Galilee, just as he said, where Jesus had promised to meet them, just as the young man said, whether that's John Mark, the writer who knows what's going to happen, or whether that's an angel, a messenger. In those days, they couldn't really tell the difference. An angel looked just like a person at times. That's why some people thought that Jesus was Elijah or Moses or, you know, back and forth. They weren't sure. Dr. King would say this, and when we come to these moments in life, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Just get to Galilee, friends. You don't have to know the whole story. Just get going to Galilee. And so we come to this original ending of the Gospel of Mark. It's in 16, verse 8. Um, Not all of your Bibles will show you that, but if you have a study Bible, you'll see that. Uh, The rest was added later. And so it says this, they went out, they fled the tomb. For terror and amazement had seized them, and, say it with me, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, some of you in the room say that you are followers of Jesus. Have you said anything to anyone yet? That's the question. Have you said anything to anyone? That Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, that is the good news. That's why we gather. Have you told anyone? The original ending of the gospel of Mark is 16.8. It leaves us with the good news to overcome the terror and the unbelief and the silence. Are those things around? Absolutely they are. They were then, they are now. But have you told anyone anything about the love of our Lord? That they don't have to be afraid of him. That they can lean into him. The fear and the silence of the women, Dr. Levine says, is never the last word. Mark leaves us the time and the space to make our own proclamations. Will you? Oh, come on. That's where you say, yes. Yes, yes. That's why we exist, to help non-religious, non-active Christians become followers of Jesus, close so that they get the dust on them, radical, right close to them. The late Rachel Evans writes this. She says, you know, when things went south and all the signs pointed to failure, nearly all the men had abandoned Jesus after his arrest. It was women who stuck around. It was women who stood witness at the foot of the cross because that is what friends do. They show up. They show up. When's the last time you showed up for somebody? That's what it is to follow Jesus. And so I want to invite you as your action step this Thanksgiving weekend to commit stubbornly, 
unapologetically, unrelentingly to showing up for others with grace. Not with a harsh word, not with a judgment. A casserole would be nice. Show up. It'd be very Methodist of you. Just show up. So as we close today and we move into the Advent season where we await Jesus, we conclude this whole Christian year, I want to invite you to pray um, this prayer um, that's in our United Methodist Book of Worship for Christ the King Sunday as we remember one final time this Christian year that Jesus is Lord of all. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, who gave your son Jesus Christ a realm where all people, nations, and languages should serve him, make us loyal followers of our living Lord, that we may always hear his word, follow his teachings, and live in his spirit, and hasten the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to your eternal glory. Amen. And now with the confidence of children of God, let's share the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.